Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jeff and Cassie. And thank you, Holly, earlier for the long one. Uh, Good morning, church family. I have always loved the story of Samuel in the Old Testament, and in particular, the one that was read for us this morning by Holly, where God calls to Samuel in the middle of the night. And as was read for us, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And so Samuel isn't exactly accustomed to hearing from God, which is something we're going to talk about a little bit more later. But as such, he assumes that it's the old man. It is Eli, the priest, sleeping in the next room who has called him. And he runs in and he wakes him up saying, here I am, you called me. And this happens three times, at which point you know the old man has got to be getting annoyed. And he says to Samuel, in effect, stop it. It's not me. It's the Lord. The next time this happens, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Have you ever had that experience when you think you've heard someone say your name or call you and someone's trying to get your attention and then you will respond like, hey, did you call me? And, and they respond somewhat confused saying, no, it wasn't me. I don't know how old I was when I first became familiar with this story, but to this day, whenever that experience happens to me, I quietly and proudly amuse myself by saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. This is a special genre of humor that is called dorky insider evangelical humor that nobody else gets. Christians have a lot of this, which is why if you ever go to see a Christian comedian, you can always tell who didn't grow up in church because they just look confused. But I also love the story of Samuel and his mother, Hannah, because it is a story that's very near and dear to my own story and my mom's heart. And if you're not familiar with the biblical story, in it, Hannah, who is childless, strikes a bargain with God. If the Lord gives her a son, she will give that son back to God. In 1968, my mom's first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage at three months, and about a year later, her second pregnancy went well, and my parents were blessed with a beautiful baby girl, my sister Cheryl, a first grandchild for my mom's parents, and a first granddaughter for my dad's parents. And before long, they were pregnant again. But at full term in childbirth, a terrible tragedy occurred with the umbilical cord wrapping around the baby's neck and they were beyond devastated. They named the boy Kevin, and instead of leaving the hospital and heading home, they headed to a cemetery with a small white casket and a few family members trying to give them comfort. Reading from a letter that my mom wrote, hoping to add to our family, we were excited to know we were once again expecting another child. But after the fifth month, things started to go terribly wrong. Lots of complications, my kidneys were not functioning properly, and lots of other issues. At six months, I was hospitalized and on complete bed rest, with the doctor telling me not to count on this baby. I was devastated. My hopes and dreams for this unborn child were shattered. 
as often happens, when we are at our lowest, we look to God for a miracle, and that is exactly what I did. I prayed to God for the well-being of this baby that I already loved and was so much a part of me. I remembered the story of Hannah and how she prayed for a child and the promise she made that that child would be given back to God. I too prayed for my unborn child and promised God that he would be given back to him. After many tears and prayers, a peace came over me, and I knew God was in complete control of the situation regardless of the outcome. My labor was induced several weeks early, and the medical specialists were still not hopeful and prepared me for the worst. They told me the baby was very small and there were complications. So, with the incubator and specialists ready, I was wheeled into the delivery room. This was the most wonderful moment of my life. A baby boy, eight pounds, eight ounces, and we named him Curtis Harm after his father. And now for the slightly amusing part of the letter. The doctors were still concerned because his head was larger than the normal range of measurements. (laughs) But he seemed perfect to me. I knew parts of this story as a kid. I knew about the miscarriage in 1968 before my sister, and I knew about baby Kevin, who died at childbirth. And I knew about the bed rest and the months-long hospitalization and complications that my mom had with me. And I even knew about my oversized head. I have seen the pictures, and they do not lie. But as a kid, My mom never told me the part about Hannah's prayer. If you give me this child, I'll give him back to you. And I'm glad she never told me that because that could have felt strangely weird and manipulative. So she held on to that right up to my senior year of high school until after I had declared that I wanted to go into ministry and go to Bible college. So yeah, anytime I read a story in the Bible with Samuel in it, it always hits a little bit differently because of my mom's story. And by the way, if sharing this story has somehow unintentionally and falsely made me sound special, I am certain that Kim or either of my adult daughters would be happy any time to clear up any misconceptions that you may have. But back to our text. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. If your understanding of the American church was only informed by the news that makes headlines, one might conclude that we are presently in a similar state of affairs, that the word of the Lord is rare and there are no frequent visions. I'm reading a book by Bradley Jerzak called Out of the Embers, in which he uses a phrase that I had never heard before, and maybe it isn't original to him, maybe he got it somewhere else, but the phrase is deconstruction influencers. We all know what an influencer is. They, they are people who use their online presence to share their thoughts, their opinions, practices, behaviors with their followers in the hopes of influencing and affecting their lives. Like, Helen Van Winkle, the 95-year-old stylish grandma with 3.2 million followers on Instagram. Her Instagram bio description reads, Helen Van Winkle, Church of God, stealing yo man since 1928. And by the way, that absolutely wins for best Instagram bio ever. 
I think that her desired influence and effect is to create joy and to encourage everyone, but especially other fellow octogenarians and older, to love your life and live it as fully as you are able. By the way, I'm not endorsing any of these Instagram accounts that you may start following right now, so I'm just saying that out loud. There's also um, Dude with a Sign. Anyone familiar with Dude with a Sign? 7.9 million followers on Instagram, and he simply holds up signs with sayings that are true and perhaps sometimes necessary with the help of this you know, cardboard sign drawn on with a marker. Here he is standing outside of an Ulta beauty store with a sign that reads, I just need to get one thing is a lie. I, I think that's a good, good sign. Or there's another, uh, here's another one where we're, he's holding a sign that says, a dozen roses is less than a dozen rosés. So, but deconstruction influencers are not nearly as lighthearted. Deconstruction influencers elevate religious bad news, spiritual abuse by pastors, systemic oppression within denominations, controlling and toxic monster god theology and more. And the desired influence of the shallowest of these deconstruction influencers seems primarily to be burn it all down. Somewhat cynically, but I think accurately, Bradley Jerzak refers to the worst of these pop deconstruction influencers not so much as a movement, but as an industry built upon and fed and sustained by just being angry and encouraging alienation from faith. And of course, all of these things are real. There is spiritual abuse by pastors and cover-ups, and systemic cruelty within churches and denominations. And nothing breaks my heart more than hearing these stories. And they deserve to be called out. And this is exactly what is happening in our story with Samuel. Spiritual abuse and oppression is happening. Our passage tells us that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were blaspheming God and he, Eli, did not restrain them. If we back up a chapter, we learn what it is that they were doing and how they were blaspheming God. When worshipers came to offer a sacrifice against the priestly custom, Eli's sons would forcibly take the best portions of the meat for themselves. Or putting this into modern language, they were getting rich off of the church. But even worse, Eli's sons regularly abused their position of authority as priests to have sex with the women who served at the tent of meeting. The passage doesn't call it rape, but there is clearly a power dynamic at play. With priests like these overseeing the temple, it is no wonder that our text starts out by saying, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. We learn from 1 Samuel chapter 1 that from the time Samuel was weaned from his mother Hannah, he was raised in the temple by Eli. His mother Hannah was true to her word. She gave him to the Lord. And in chapter 2, we read that while living and serving in the temple, Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. It seems that God was honoring Hannah's faithfulness. Despite the rarity of the word of the Lord and the infrequency of visions, Samuel was somehow growing into a good and godly man. 
Unless he was particularly unobservant, he probably knew all of the shenanigans that were going on in the temple. The taking advantage of women at the tent of meeting. The stealing of sacrifices. He surely saw how Hophni and Phinehas were abusing their positions of authority to serve their own greed and their gluttony and their lust. And on the night of our text, God breaks the silence and he speaks to Samuel. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel. I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. Tell him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. In Samuel's day, just as in ours, there were things that needed to be called out. When the name of Yahweh became attached to abusive priests who steal from and sexually exploit the worshipers they serve, something had to change. When the name of Jesus today becomes attached to spiritual abuse, to cover-ups of sexual and financial exploitation, toxic and manipulative leadership and doctrines, something has to change. And by the way, Bradley Jerzak in his book, he calls, when this happens, he calls this identity theft, attaching Jesus' name to something that looks nothing like him. And I quite like his use of that phrase, identity theft. What God tells Samuel to do, to call out the religious structures and leaders of his day, is what every deconstruction influencer believes that God has told them to do. And perhaps God has told them to do that. But it is here where we discover a marked difference between Samuel and many of the trendy pop cottage industry deconstruction influencers of today. And here's the difference. There is no eagerness or delight in Samuel. In fact, verse 15 of our text says that Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And this is where I can say that while my, that my mom might be like Hannah, but I am not like Samuel. But I'm trying. I've confessed this before, but I am far too eager and delighted when I learn about the exposure and condemnation of an abusive Christian ministry or some huckster evangelical leader. In fact, when I read those stories, I often hope that more is uncovered and that even more damning details come to light. I want the darkness to be darker still. Which reminds me of a quote that I shared some time ago during pandemic worship from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where he writes this, and pay attention, this is good. Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not quite be true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that, or is it a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it is the second, then it is, I am afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head, Later on, we shall wish to see gray as black, 
and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad, and not be able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. Intentional or not, this seems to be the telos of many of today's deconstruction influencers to make us into devils, forever wishing the darkness to be darker still, that we end up fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. And I understand being angry, but may we not become devils in the process. Let's not go there. In that same sermon where I shared the C.S. Lewis quote, I shared a liturgy that I wrote as a way for me to pray through this tendency in me. I won't read the entire thing now because it's a bit wordy, but here are a few uh, phrases from it. And if you're interested, I have included this liturgy, the full prayer, on the homepage of our Church Center app if you want to look it up later. But here's a few lines from it. Jesus, here I am again, reveling in the misdeeds and missteps and misfortunes of another, darkly feasting on the humiliation of someone I've pitted myself against. But you, O Christ, are not pitted against them. You are as for them as you are for me. You desire their restoration as deeply as you desire my own. Given the choice between grace and gloating, for too long I've chosen the foul pleasure of gloating. It has become like a dark honey I can no longer resist, but it is slowly bringing rot and decay to my soul. Change me, for this is not who I want to be. Change me, for this does not make me a credit to the message of Christ. Refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Can I get an amen? Amen. Before chatting for a few moments about Eli, I want to share two other quick observations that separate Samuel from many of the modern-day deconstruction influencers. So first of these additional observations. After receiving this strong word of judgment from God about Eli and his sons, Samuel spoke to Eli not about him. Samuel spoke to Eli, not about him. I think this is more than just a descriptive element of the story. I think this is also prescriptive. And yes, I acknowledge there are situations where this isn't possible. There are environments where this isn't safe. And there are circumstances where this is attempted, but it only falls on deaf ears and other avenues need to be pursued. But this is a good initial rule of thumb. It's a good initial starting point. Samuel spoke to Eli, not about him. Second observation. Instead of burn it all down, Samuel's aim was to build it back up. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel is speaking to all the house of Israel, and he says, Return to the Lord with all your heart. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you. Always remember that the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. And on that note, please forgive me. I'm saying this with full integrity for the times that I get stuck critiquing the bad and lose sight of practicing the better. But now, 
onto Eli. This is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And tonight from 5.30 to 7.30, we are co-hosting and facilitating a dinner and an interactive learning experience at First Cary United Methodist Church for about 150 guests. And some of those guests are you. I was so happy to see a few of your names on the registration list. We, Ecclesia, are providing all of the catering for the evening. And I want to publicly thank Cynthia Wilson, who's back there. Raise your hand, get some acknowledgement here, who has arranged all of the details for the catering, yes. The learning portion of this evening is an interactive activity where we will walk through various U.S. policies dating from the end of slavery in 1865 through up until modern day to see how those policies impacted American families differently, who benefited the most, who was harmed the most. And tonight, as a transition moment after dinner, moving into this interactive learning activity, we're going to be playing this short two-minute video, so pay attention here. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. grew up within the temple system and saw its corruption, Martin Luther King Jr. grew up in the South and saw its cruelty. And when Dr. King started preaching his dream that one day this nation would rise up and live out the true meaning of its creeds, 
when he penned his remarkable letter from a Birmingham prison calling out his disappointment with the complacency and complicity of the white church and its leadership, like Samuel, there was no delight or pleasure in him. He knew hate would not drive out hate. There was no wishing to think of his enemies as evil as possible. There was no wishing that the darkness were darker still. There was only hope that the darkness would end. Hope that one day our country would fully live out its creeds. If Samuel is markedly different from present-day deconstruction influencers, Eli stands apart as well. Eli wants to hear the word of correction. He pretty much demands it, which is markedly different from the white church of Martin Luther King Jr.'s day and from many church leaders and religious institutions today. Look again at Eli's response. What is it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. This too, I believe, is not just descriptive of what happened, but it should be read as prescriptive, as an example for us to follow today. This is the type of influencer account that we need to follow. An influencer that leads us to humbly admit wrongdoing, to accept consequences, to be open to correction. Imagine if the white church and its leaders had responded with this level of humility in Dr. King's day. Or if the contemporary church and its leadership today were so eager and open for correction. Imagine if those were the headlines the church was making. Christian church demands to be held accountable. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Pop deconstruction influencers would have a hell of a lot less material to write about. And perhaps the church would start to rebuild trust and recover some of its lost credibility. But wrapping things up, the encouragement from Samuel seems to be this. Listen and speak. In the spirit of Samuel, may we commit to active listening and courageous conversations within our faith communities, but also in our homes and in our places of work. Speak truth when needed, but do so with a heart that is set on healing and restoration, not set on stoking anger and discontent. And the lesson from Eli seems to be this, humility in leadership. Whether we are leaders in our homes, our workplaces, or churches, may we all emulate Eli's humility acknowledge mistakes, be open to correction, and even crave it. Let's pray together. Holy One, we thank you for the stories of Samuel and Eli. May we be open to hear a corrective word, and like Samuel, may we be courageous enough to say tough things but always in a manner that makes us a credit to the message of Christ and not a liability. Refashion us all 
according to the better designs of your love. Amen.